Over the last number of weeks, uh, we've looked at Psalms of Lament. We've, we've been in a, I don't think it's just our church. I think there's a lot of people that are really struggling. A lot of sadness, a lot of sorrow, a lot of discouragement, a lot of sickness. And just this like summer lull, just kind of blah. And so we wanted to talk about Psalms of Lament just to try to figure out, okay, now, what, what is it that David teaches us? What is it that God's Word teaches us how to lament, how to, how to walk in a kind of a sorrow-laden journey with our eyes fixed on God? Now, there'll be um, more Psalms of Lament after this morning. This one is not a Psalm of Lament, but it's smack dab in the middle of the Psalms of Lament. And it's as though like psalm after psalm, it's a song book, right, the psalms. So it's like, it's like song after song is lament and lament with some praise in it. And then all of a sudden it's like, David, if you could kind of keep the psalms together in this way, it's kind of like David like is sorrowful, sorrow-filled and he's, he's crying out to God and he sees his enemies all around and then he looks up and he sees one of those pictures. And he's like, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm is all celebration, it's all praise, it's all a um, worship of the wonder and beauty of God. It's a celebration, a song of uh, the majesty of God. Majesty seen through the lens of creation particularly, and I know, you know, if kids went on vacation, I know adults went on vacation, and I know that some of you, um, or at least one family, was out in the middle of Utah at one point, and you guys had to have looked up in Utah and just been like, or Colorado, or, or Arizona, or out in the middle of nowhere where there's not a lot of lights, and just be overwhelmed. This is an opportunity for us this morning to lift our heads out of that which we are lamenting and look to the skies and to consider the majesty of God, the grandeur of God's glory in nature, in the heavens, in the, on, on the moon, the, the stars, the birds of the air, the animals of the earth, and the fish under the waters. There's so much to see, so much to look at, so much to consider what God has created. But Psalm 8 doesn't limit the majesty of God to what you can see through a telescope. It doesn't limit what you can see as majesty of God through a microscope. God's majesty can also be seen every single time you look in the mirror. It's really true. Now perhaps you don't like the way you look when you look in the mirror. But Psalm 8 tells us about the majesty of God, and it tells us about the dignity of you and me, and it yet points further to the evidence of the majesty of God and the grandeur of God, even as you look at yourself in the mirror with all your warts and wrinkles and lack of hair and too much skin or something else that's underneath, or whatever. We just don't like what we see, but it's like there is beauty, dignity. God has made us. So the point that I want to make at this morning is all of creation, all of creation is an invitation to each of us to worship the greatness and goodness of God. 
All of creation is an invitation. It doesn't force our hands. It's an invitation to each of us to worship the greatness and goodness of God. Verse four itself asks the question that's baffled all kinds of people throughout the generations. And, and it's actually at the forefront of all the struggle with gender and sexuality issues in our culture today. The, the primary reason this question continues to baffle people today and the world would you know, question or believes the question to simply uh, answer this would be up to each individual themselves is because you cannot answer the question, what is man, until you answer the question, who is God? It really is as simple as that. And to truly know God is to worship his majesty, to, to worship his grandeur, to, to worship his magnificence. And this psalm takes us right to that majesty and we're invited to celebrate him and worship him and praise him and find our joy in him and to find our purpose in him and life in all his greatness and his goodness. And you might imagine then if, if that's all of what's wrapped up into knowing God and believing in him and trusting in him and worshiping him, that if God is removed from that, what is man? You decide. Let the nation decide. And do you, do you find, friends, do you find your life and your joy and your purpose in the greatness and goodness of God? Is that where your life is found? This text invites us to do so. The first thing I want to point to this morning is that we are invited to celebrate the majesty of God because he is great. Because he's great. In verse 1, we see clearly the praise of the greatness of God. He says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Matter of fact, at the end of the passage, he repeats it. He's just overwhelmed by this reality. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, so he's lifted his eyes up, he's seen the heavens, and he's beside himself in worship. He just cannot believe it. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. Have you ever shouted that out when you've seen nature? You've seen, you're, if you're like me, you look at it and you're like, that's amazing, that's amazing, but oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth? In Scripture, someone's name is more than just a means of identifying themselves. The name reveals the way a person is, their character, their attributes, um, their nature, who they are. And this is certainly and specifically true for God. So true is this that God commands the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, not just a, a, light, a light thing, but part of the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain, without due respect, without the respect that it's due, his name, Yahweh. And David seeks to obey the command and how he speaks to God in this psalm by saying, O Lord, our Lord, and the children of Israel, just, just quick, the children of Israel would not quickly say or not say Yahweh, the self-existent one. He wouldn't call or try to avoid the use of that name anyway, so that they would call him Adonai instead, the sovereign one. And even that name was treated with absolute reverence. 
David was so consumed, so overwhelmed by, so in awe of the greatness of God that he cried out both names in this moment. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, our sovereign one, our, our, oh, great I am, oh, our God, oh, the one who is for us and not against us, oh, the one who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy, oh, our God, this is the God that I follow. Far from using God's name without the due respect as our society, unfortunately, has grown so accustomed to, and perhaps... You know, we have a taste of this inside of our own hearts. David communicates names of God in a, in a not, just, not just respectful way, but worshipful, worshipful way. It's a statement of faith in the one God that Israel would sing out. It was a statement of faith in the Lord their God, the Lord his God, about his nature, about his character, everything the Lord is, including his majesty and his excellence and his glory and his beauty, and he's entirely magnificent. And when we speak of God's glory, we're speaking of just the infinite greatness of, of who he is in his essence. It is his glory. It's who he is made up of. Yet when we speak of God's majesty or sing of God's majesty, we're speaking of the public display of that glory of who he is. So it's the way we see it. So we look at the sky and we see God's glory, but we see the majesty of his glory. We see the public display of his glory in the sky. That public display of God's glory that is revealed in his name is so great that it cannot be limited to a people group, for instance, like Israel in this day. When he's speaking, when he's singing, he's not speaking about just specific Israel, although he says, our Lord, oh Lord, our Lord, speaking of the people of Israel, but the name of God is not contained, is not localized to a certain people group or nation. God's name is majestic where? In the text. What does it say? Your name is majestic in all the earth. And so we sing out with Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. God is great, not just in Israel. God is great in all the earth. Serve the Lord then with gladness and come into his presence with singing. Second half of verse one states that God is also great in the heavens. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And you've set your glory above the heavens. Now let me reiterate, the glory is not an attribute of God, not a character, traits. Glory is the totality of all the attributes of God. It is his essence. It is the light of his nature. It is the reality and weight of his holy character, his glory. When we say that we give glory to God, which, which is accurate, we are, we are not meaning in any way that we are making God somehow more glorious. He is glorious not on account of our praising him, but God is glorious because God is God. He just is glorious. He is above all. He is set apart. He is transcendent in beauty. He is worthy of all praise, and he is worthy of infinitely more. God's worthy of our lives being marked by and our celebration gatherings being marked by joyful thanksgiving, passionate praise, worship, exuberant singing and hearts of repentance and, and hearts bowed down and our hands raised high. 
He's worthy of this. The God who made this, the God who made us, the God who made everything that there is, He is worthy of all of our praise and all of our adoration. So true is this that David writes another psalm when he writes this in Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. Do do, do, you feel that? Great is the Lord and he is, it is greatly to be praised. He is greatly to be praised. So we sing out with passion and we're like, yes, this is is who he is. He is worthy of our lives. He is worthy of our death. He's worthy of everything we are for he made us. And we'll get to that in a few moments. His greatness is incomparable. we're, We're so quick to find greatness in all sorts of other things, but God, God is great. He, his greatness is incomparable. He is entirely unique. It is true that there is no one, there is no one, no thing like our God. He's worthy of our strongest praise. The strongest among us praising. The irony of the text, though, is found in verse 2, when he says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, though the Lord's strength is splashed across the heavens, he's established strength in the face of his foes through the praise of even the weakest among us. Held in arms, sitting in seats, We know that over the last number of weeks, there's been much talk about enemies in the lament psalms that we've covered. And these enemies show up in this psalm as well, but, but they're not, in this, not brought up in the same kind of way. David is, isn't concerned about the enemies outside of, the, outside of the cave trying to kill him. He's concerned about God's enemies. The, the foes in this text are the Lord's foes. They are described as the enemy and the avenger. And we're not given much information beyond that. The the enemies might be demonic forces or human kings and people who attack the people of God on earth. Whoever they are, specifically the strategy of the Lord's foes is to foolishly use their power and their might and their strength that they've been given by God himself to overthrow this glorious, incomparable God. In Psalm 2, the psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. These, these foes are God's foes. And these foes are foes of God's glory. They hate God's glory, who he is. And they're powerful enemies. But in our psalm, in verse 2, we're told that God stills this powerful enemy, these powerful enemies and avengers, by way of establishing strength through the powerful praise of his people, even little children. Though God's enemies try to defeat him, though they try to come against him, they fail every time and are defeated by, by what? By praise, by adoration, by worship. Declaration of who God is and His greatness. 
Praise and worship of our great God, whose name is majestic in all the earth and whose glory is above the heavens, even among the littlest and weakest among us, packs a powerful punch against the enemies of God. For even when a child sings out, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name, there's spiritual warfare that's being done. God is somehow utilizing the praises of even the littlest and weakest among us to defeat his enemies. Consider the week Jesus was crucified when he enters Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple of the money changers and the sellers of pigeons to sacrifice. Then he heals a blind man. And then we read of children. And, and you'd, you'd swear that you'd like listen to these children who just kind of read through it. And these children must be like the little you know, Catholic choir boys that are just very quiet and singing, singing out beautifully, and, and they're just like perfect kids, right? They're, they're not. They're just children. Imperfect. Sometimes noisy. Perhaps struggling to listen. Sometimes disobedient. Sometimes distracted, other times distracting to you. These children cried out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. The children came singing the Lord's praises. And the religious leaders were angry for a couple of reasons, probably. One of them probably because the kids are kids. Kids need to get away. The other reason is because of what they were actually saying about Jesus. Matthew writes that Jesus responded to those angry religious leaders this way in Matthew chapter 26 or 21. He says this, they, the religious leaders, said to him, that is Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yeah. Have you never read, Pharisees, scribes, you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise? You might see the change, the way Jesus describes this text, the way Jesus speaks of this text. In our text, it's established strength. And Jesus, utilizing the Greek translation of the Old Testament, spoke of an understanding prepared praise. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. King Jesus quoted this psalm and declared himself to be the Lord God who establishes strength or prepares praise out of the mouths of little children when his religious foes refuse to acknowledge him for who he is. Even the little children get who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the King. He's the Son of David. And this is how God always works. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Even his disciples, what did they say when the little children approached Jesus? Get, get away. Jesus got too many important things to do. And Jesus says, let the little children come. Now perhaps we're not the most eloquent Perhaps we're not the most brilliant of people. We don't know all the answers. We, we aren't the most gifted people. But the Lord establishes strength through the simple praise of even the weakest among us. May we be a people marked by celebrating 
the majesty and praising the majesty of God because He is great. We're overcome by beauty of creation. We cry out with the hymn writer, as we'll sing in a few moments, then sings my soul, my Savior God to Thee, how great Thou art. And not just on Sunday mornings, but in our hearts as we walk through the week, as we, as we see the beauty among us, as we see the devastation of God's beauty in other ways around us, that we would say, God, you are awesome. You are majestic. You are worthy of praise. You are great. And I'm only seeing just a little bit, and I'm overwhelmed by it. One day we get to see him in all his glory. <laughs> That's going to be amazing. Until then, we see snippets. And the snippets we see, like the pictures, for instance. Or when you consider the little ones around us. Or we consider the old ones among us. And you see body and soul, God ministering and strengthening. I think about my mom and dad. And I think about the years of health. My mom um, administrative guru, multitasking. Many of you have seen this kind of thing in your own families or other people. And then something, some something stops working and she can't remember my name. It's sad, but it's the beauty and glory of God. As I look at you, and you all are listening to me right now, and you're actually understanding what I'm saying. And hopefully, you're understanding what I'm saying, but like that we can speak to each other, that we can hear one another, that we walked here, that we drove, that we had the ability to be able to steer a car while pushing on the gas pedal, while pressing the brake pedal at certain times when we see something, and there's all glory to God. Invited to celebrate the majesty of God because He is great. But He is also good. And so I want to invite you to point number two, Invited to celebrate the majesty of God because he is good. David sees the majesty of the glory of God on display in the heavens, but he also can't help but see the grandeur of goodness as God cares for humanity. His ongoing care and his very creation of humanity. Verse 3 and 4 record one long sentence. It's a question, it's a question that makes a statement about God's unmatched and innate goodness and care for humanity. David cries out this. He says, when I look at your heavens... God, when I look at your heavens, when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, now for most of us, you know, we're living in the Dayton area, the city lights block out most of the sky. We miss the general revelation of, of the heavens above. Psalm 19, 1 though says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Well, David again looked up at the clear sky in the darkness of night and he saw God everywhere. He did not give worship to the sky or, or just kind of say, huh, that's amazing. I wonder what, how that came about. He 
believed that God created it. It belongs to God. He says that he calls the heavens your heavens. Why not look at your heavens? They are his heavens. He's the one who made them. He's the one who keeps them. He's the one who spoke them into existence. He's the one that keeps them in existence. Now Romans 1.20 says that his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that mankind is without excuse. I mean, certainly, Romans 1 speaks of the suppression of truth, the suppression of the reality. To be able to look at the sky like that and say, wow, that just came together over billions of years and your body came together over billions of years and brought to where you are today. It's just, it's, fact is the suppression of that truth does not negate the fact of the truth. The heavens are God's heavens. They declare the glory of God. They declare the majesty of God. And creating the heavens, the very universe that we're in wonder of, yet know so little of ultimately, was not a difficult task for God. In fact, I don't want to make too much of this, but it's the work of his fingers. The vast universe that the various telescopes allow us to see more of and the reality of all that is seen and still not seen is in the heavens are God's handiwork. You you remember that little part of the heavens that the Hubble telescope aimed on for 10 years. It's just like, it's just just left of the moon somewhere along the line and it's just this little tiny black spot the darkest part of the sky evidently and so it kept aiming at that over a 10-year period of time and ended up seeing 10,000 I think it was 10,000 galaxies or something like that in that little little spot they'd never seen it before and then once they had that spot evidently there's a a a telescope that they're able to aim from earth straight to that spot and they found thousands more it's rather rather amazing handiwork of God's fingers. The moon and the stars didn't find their place by a big bang. Almighty God set them in their appointed places. This this is the, the transcendence of God at work as we look up at the heavens. Perhaps foolishness to the very fool of Psalm 14 who says in his heart there is no God, but to us, beauty, wonder, majesty, worship, But David's overwhelmed by him, by God. Not just by his creation, but he's overwhelmed by him. Looking to the heavens, one rightly feels small and rightly feels generally insignificant. At least least we should feel insignificant when we look at the heavens. You consider consider the vastness of the universe and you consider the smallness of planet Earth in the vastness of the universe. And then of all the Earth, you think of you. You. How seemingly insignificant. With the growing accuracy of thought regarding the greatness of God, David says in verse 4, he comes to the logical conclusion, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. The right answer to that question is nothing. What is man? Nothing. Take God out of the equation for sure, man is nothing. God is so transcendent that the creation of the vast and mysterious universe should be nothing to him. 
All in all, when you consider the enormity again of the universe and the smallness of the earth, who, who are we? It's the right answer to the question David's asking. What's man that you're mindful of him? It's a, it's a question of humble shock. How is God mindful of us? Why? Why would God be mindful of us in the middle of all, all of that? Those pictures. Why does this creator God care for us as weak people? I mean, we're, we're hardly obedient. But because he's good. It's because he's good. The goodness of God is seen in how God treats weak creatures of the moment like you and me. He's mindful of us. Okay, first God is mindful of us. Psalm 144 says this, O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. We, we, we know we're, we are one breath away from death. Like a passing shadow, we're here one moment and we're gone the next. And yet, and yet, God is mindful of us. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29 through 31, Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Far from meaning nothing, we are valuable to God. Likewise, God cares for us. You think about the progression in verse 4 from God in thought, mindful of us, to God at work. He actually cares for us. Not just mindful, but He cares for the Son of Man. And this word cares is, is, is more than a feeling. It means God actually longs for us. He calls us to come to Him. He calls, He invites us to find rest in Him repeatedly through Scripture. He comes down to us. He draws us near he seeks us out. He faithfully takes care of us over and over and over again. And as Christians, we know this better than David did. In verse 4, David uses the term son of man to describe humans and our weakness. But in the Gospels, who is it that used the term son of man but Jesus himself? And so doing, Jesus identified as God who put on human flesh in all weakness to visit us with his redeeming love that died on the cross in our place and rose from the dead. And God isn't just mindful of us and cares so deeply for us just because. Just, just happens to. He does so because of what we see in verse 5. Because he's made us. We did not come from goop. God created you. And God created me. Psalm 100 verse 3 says, Know that the Lord, the same Lord, Yahweh, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His, and we are His people, and we are the sheep of His pasture. And in the creation of mankind, we see the majestic glory of God. We're told in verse 5 that He says, Yet you have made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Created angels, the, the lowercase Elohim, these are, these are not mindless creatures somehow. They're not chimpanzees of heaven. These are the glorious angels, some who disobeyed and have become the enemies of God, but they're the heavenly ones, the heavenly beings, the divine 
ones. The point I'm just simply trying to make in this moment is that you and I, dear friends, have been made a little lower than the divine heavenly beings, not just a little higher than a chimpanzee. We're told, we're told the latter, that we're just like one or two things off of a chimpanzee, whereas God says, actually, a little lower than the Elohim. God created man in his infinite greatness and goodness with divine dignity. He says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And when God created humanity, God crowned humanity. He crowned us with glory and honor. And who should be crowned with glory and honor but God alone? Verse 1 says, you have set your glory above the heavens, yet the glory of God that is set above the heavens is also somehow set on the earth, not primarily in the mountains and the seas, although that's true, but primarily in humanity. He crowned you and I and your children and your neighbors and your co-workers and your political enemies and the criminal and the jihadists on the news. He crowned humanity with his glory and with honor. This does not mean we are like little gods like some religions would teach, but it is an affirmation of Genesis chapter 1 verse 27 where we're told God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And in our specific and unique created distinctions as male and female, we've been crowned with God's glory and honor. And just as a side note, we'll get to this in the fall sometime, that The foundational reason that we would believe the issue of gender and sexuality in our culture that exists today is foundationally problematic is because of this truth. God made us, crowned us with glory and honor. He made us male and female. More for another day. We're we're not just an advanced biological species. The psalmist continues, and what we come to understand is that, again, God did not create mankind to merely coexist on the earth with the other created animals. God created man to have dominion over the earth, to steward the work of God's hands by way of dominion. Verse 6 says, you have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Mankind doesn't have dominion by some sort of evolutionary theory of survival of the fittest. God gave us dominion over the works of his hands, and he has put all things under our feet. We are stewards of the earth who are responsible to God and accountable to God for the way that we steward this planet, the work of his hands. And that, of course, has nothing to do with politics. This is not political posturing for or against global warming or the use of chemicals or whatever else is in the so-called environmentalist agenda. This is not a Republican thing or a Democrat argument. We all, all of us, mankind, especially those who follow the Lord, are called to steward the earth in every way possible as those responsible for it before God. Think about the scope of the dominion that the Lord has given mankind. Verse 6, you have put all things under his feet. Verse 7 and 8 say a little bit more. All sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God has given humanity dominion over all things from the birds of the air to the fish of the sea to the beasts of the field and everything in between. We celebrate the majesty of God in creation because he's, he's good. He's great and he's good. Psalm 8 is a beautiful song of praise, but it leaves out an important part 
of the meta-narrative of the Bible. It's true that God created man with dignity, and God created man for dominion, but our original design was spoiled by the fall of mankind. The sin of Adam and Eve introduced sin, guilt, shame, suffering, and death into the human experience, and each of us stands guilty before holy God as sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. The image of God in in man is tainted and twisted and, and tarnished. The first Adam plunged humanity into sin and judgment, but the second Adam brings humanity to righteousness. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 10, the author says, it's been testified somewhere in our text, what is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't see yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Friends, we are sinful people. We live in a fallen world. We are weak creatures who honestly live moment by moment. We're always staring death in the face. And the reality is that we're doomed to eternal punishment if left to ourselves. But God intervened by sending the Lord Jesus Christ to taste death for you and I. His death on the cross paid the debt of punishment that our sin deserves, and his resurrection from the dead gives us new life. One commentator says this, Christ's work on the cross did not merely undo Adam's sin and put us back where Adam was. Rather, it gives us much more. It made us like Christ. Now, how should we respond to this indescribable gift? Psalm 8 does not explain the dignity and dominion of man to somehow boost how we feel about ourselves. It seeks to boost our amazement of the greatness and goodness of God. How kind and awesome He is. Just why the psalm ends right where it began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. It's true, all of creation is an invitation to each of us to worship the greatness and goodness of God. The question is simply only one question. Will you come and worship Him with your life? To not only sing a song of praise, but to let your life of surrender and satisfaction to Him and in Him be the song of praise. The song says, And when I think that God his son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to do what? Say it. Take away my sin. This is the God we come to worship week in, week out. This is the God whom we wake up to every morning to say, thank you for keeping me alive while I was unaware. Thank you for the fact that you give me life. Thank you that I can look around and see. Thank you for the gifts that every day holds 
Oh, Lord, my Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We, we celebrate this gift of the Son of God coming. How, why, why was God so mindful of us to send his only Son to die for us? John 3.16 tells us. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son This is why we celebrate. Why did he do this? He came so that if we would confess and believe in our heart that God did this, worked in us, that our lives would be radically changed, whether four years old or 59 years old or however old you are, that we would live a life of praise and worship to the Lord. We would be radically altered and changed and have been given great joy. So we come.